split this psalm into three sections, God the Redeemer, God the Creator, and God the Provider. But I was raised in my early years by a query grandmother, so today I want to talk to you about God the Creator, God as first and foremost the Creator, and how his redemptive transformative power and the abundance and blessing he bestows on us as this provider merely flows out from creation. So Psalm 65, to me, is an invitation for us to shift our worldview in order to better see God at the centre of everything, to see God in ourselves, to see God in the earth, to learn from the sea which is the sea, the sky which is the sky, the mountains which are the mountains, the earth which isn't anything other than what it was created to be. N.T. Wright, in his argument for the psalm, suggests that what looks to be the flattened out imagination of late Western modernity, like lifeless matter, is in fact a world throbbing with God-given life. That life is constantly praising its maker by being, particularly and peculiarly, what it is. Only humans, it seems, have the capacity to live as something other than what they are. So in Revelation, the four living creatures praise God without stopping, and it is only after that humans join in. In Psalm 65, we end with the earth, full of living creatures, singing out and shouting for joy. Rowan Williams makes the point that the first violin in an orchestra is a key person, but without anyone else playing along with them, they would sound odd. Still beautiful, but odd. Um, and what if they were suddenly playing something completely different to what the rest of the orchestra was playing? That would seem even weirder. So our invitation then is to join in with the praise of the creation, but first we must do three things. First, there is a need to move beyond ourselves, beyond society. We need to learn to pay attention to the ways we can be in communion with the world, and therefore with God. And finally, we must connect with the beauty and the worship of the earth to lift our voices along with it, and in doing so, be transformed. So now I'm going to talk to you about monks. So, those called to religious life, enclosed or otherwise, often forgotten by us in this day and age. But monks and cloistered women can tell us a great many things about being part of this world, being connected with it, and the closeness this brings to God the Creator. They pierce through to the centre of creation in a way many of us do not. And this may seem ironic, as you may be wondering to yourself how exactly a monk can reach so deeply into the heart of this world when they have left it. Thomas Merton answers this question succinctly when he says that the monk abandons the world only in order to listen more intently to the deepest and most neglected voices that proceed from its inner depth. And isn't this what Jesus called us to? To attend to the hungry, the hurt and the needy to pay attention to those loved by the God who made them. There is a rich history in Christianity of men and women who have abandoned society in order to reside in harsh landscapes. And it is here that they come closer to God and his purpose for them. The 12th century monastic William of St. Thierry said that it is the love of truth which drives us from the human world towards God, but it is the truth of love which drives us back to the human world. There's always been a need to move first from the interior to the exterior, and in the case of society and the world, from the exterior back into the interior. The most obvious aspect of this psalm is that it begins its first line with you, not me or my or mine. This is a corporate song. 
We worship God at both the individual level and the communal. So when we move from the interior life to the exterior, we generate eyes which begin to see a world of interconnectedness. It, may, it should only be natural that we can come to know God more fully through being part of this world. It may seem like an obvious point, but we often forget that we are part of a fragile and complex ecosystem which God has lovingly created to sustain and enrich us. Our busy lives and what now feels like the end of the world often means that we forget about the stillness that comes when we turn to God the Creator, when we remember that we are not alone but part of something truly incredible and bigger than we could ever fully comprehend. So our struggle to turn away from ourselves, our interior lives, towards something greater and bigger than us is not a dramatic escape from a world of multiplicity and interaction. Rather, it is an opening of ourselves so we may be attuned to God in communion with the world and return better for it. In Psalm 65, we see a movement from and between God, us, and the world, and the way we move from the temple to the mountains and the seas, and finally to the flocks and the harvest. Each of these are different aspects of God in the world, and it is because of our tendency to compartmentalize that may mean at first we don't realize that inherent connection between each. Each one influences the other. The natural order of the earth, as verses 6 to 13 show, is that God has made it fertile and fruitful and ordered, but it's only in working in tandem with us, or rather the Israelites, who would facilitate the harvest and pray over it, that allowed it to prosper each season. This, along with verse 7, where the chaotic waters and the turmoil of the nations are stilled, demonstrates the harmony which exists between us, the earth, and God the Creator, and the transformative power of this has. It shows us that we cannot live without God, but equally importantly, we cannot exist without the world God has made for us. Rowan Williams says that, Just as each of us can only become who we are in relation to others, so the human race can only be its true self in relation with the rest of the living world. So we don't believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of human beings. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and visible. N.T. Wright makes the argument of this line in the Creed that unless our worship is joined, more or less consciously, with the praises of all creation, there should be a question mark as to whether this really is genuine Christian worship. So God's work here, in this psalm, in us, and in creation, is to bring us back to the centrality of God in everything and our part in a bigger picture. Creation exists to receive the love of the Father and the Son, and it is in communion with the world that we are united in this relationship of joy and intimacy. Um, however, while I was going over this psalm, I was also struck in particular by God calling for songs of joy at the end of verse 8, and again in verse 13. How often do we praise God or express joy for the blessings bestowed upon our lives? Who do we turn to first when something good happens? God or our closest friend or family member? How often do we express sincere, uncomplicated gratitude for our most basic needs being met, those we take completely for granted? So this may be the opposite for you, but I personally forget to give thanks to God when things are good, even when I know on some level that he's bestowed a blessing on some aspect of my life. Instead, I turn to him first when I'm at my most desperate, when things are so bad that I have nowhere else I could possibly go. 
um, I rarely think twice when I see something like a sunset. Um, and this question, I think, came up when I was talking to Mark about this sermon um, on whether, when we gaze upon works of wonder, do we think of God? Do we turn our eyes to him first? I know what I do is I take out my phone and snap a picture. Um, so, God did not create beauty for no reason. Another psalmist calls us to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. God's kingdom demands that we encounter beauty, a beauty that transforms us. This is why some cried when Notre Dame burned, um, why my Aboriginal grandmother cries for the destruction of the earth, because beauty is an essential part of faith and something we encounter beyond just churches. It is not just part of indigenous spirituality which, to be connected to the soil beneath our feet, to the animals who speak. Although it's different, it is still a part of our faith too, and one too often forgotten in a material world. We've forgotten that the same breath that created this earth is flowing in and out of everyone in this room right now. As verse 4 says, we are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. And we know that back then God resided in the temple. So we've forgotten how to express gratitude for simply existing, as the rivers and the mountains and the meadows do in our song today. Verse 8 says, The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. Where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. Perhaps there is a need for us to look beyond ourselves, beyond just society, to see God's abundance and blessing and works of beauty in every corner of this earth. In doing so, we may find that we have come just one tiny step closer to the God who made us, who breathed life into us, who called us by name. So we belong to the whole of God's creation, and this is what the Spirit wants and what the incarnation of the Word realises, a marriage of heaven and earth, the heaven and earth which was created by God, God who is at the centre of both and of all things. It is in the acceptance of creation, of a world we ourselves cannot master, that we begin to see it as a whole, as a reflection of heaven, as the kingdom already here. The earth is already full of knowledge of God, and this song clearly moves us from the temple into it. Thanks to the Holy Spirit, we no longer have to enter the tabernacle to encounter God. Jesus teaches us that the kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven, and that the kingdom of God is within us. Our lives reside in a larger vision of God's kingdom, even on the most basic, innermost level. So I want to end with a quote from Mary Oliver, a poet who has always found God at the centre of everything. In this poem I'll be quoting from, she has just been worrying about whether her garden will grow, whether the rivers will flow in the right direction, whether the earth will turn the way she's been taught, and how she will correct it if it isn't. In her concluding line, she says, Finally, I saw that worrying had come to nothing, and gave it up, and took my old body, and went out into the morning, and sang. And isn't this what Psalm 65 invites us to do, to join in song?